Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Matt Spiegel, and I can't wait to bring you season two of the PBP, Voices of Baseball. The very best play-by-play voices in the game talk about their craft. It's a job so special that even Joe Buck told us he will probably go back to it. I'm 53, basically 54. I, I think it's too early to say nevers at this point in my life. I think at some point I'll get the itch again. Incredible guests sharing great stories from your favorite teams coming this year. Find us on the Odyssey app or wherever you find podcasts. Bear down, baby. Yes, sir. Bears fans, this is Take the North. It's real simple. You know, if you take a person's legs away, they can't run. With your hosts, David Hawn. I want to remind people, there is no award for coming to the conclusion fastest on a quarterback in your football city. Nobody remembers, and frankly, nobody cares. And Dan Weeder. Particularly in this town, we start to get the extremes trying to outshout each other, right? Those who think that he's a bust are trying to outshout those who think that he's going to be an absolute seven-time All-Pro. We're going to take the North and never give it back. Welcome to the Take the North podcast on your free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. Download, listen, and subscribe. We are here for you, Bears fans. Dan Weeder, David Haw, after the Bears 20 to 12 lost to the Giants the Monday after, the day after, the Bears now two and two. Dan, busy day at Hallis Hall. Lots of news updates. Let's start with the biggest injury news, I think, the most significant development coming out of that game. Cody Whitehair, who's only missed two games in his last 99, one of the more reliable guys on that team, the strongest player at the weakest position, going to be out for some time, according to Matt Eberflus, with a knee injury. Yeah, David, all signs point to this being a situation that lands Cody on injured reserve. As you know, that requires him to miss four games. I would expect that move to come at some point this week. Matt Eberflus said that they would stick with the offensive line uh, formation that they had to, to end Sunday's game, which obviously is Lucas Patrick at that left guard position, Tevin Jenkins at right guard, Sam Mustafer still in at center there. So, uh, you know, obviously it's not good news. Cody Whitehair is has been a mainstay on the Spurs offensive line for most of the last six years, only missed two games in his career since he became a starter. And, and so it's something they're going to have to adjust to and, and probably didn't adjust all that well to on Sunday. And now they got to shore that up as quickly as possible. We'll get into some of the details and some of the juggling that will be going on in the next segment, but let's continue with some of the roster news. Cairo Santos back from a personal matter. That was a serious one. Michael Badgley in his, uh, in his absence, really stepped up literally and figuratively. Four field goals, the only bear to score. I guess Santos, is, it, he comes back and it's his job. Michael Badger, yeah. will he stay in the practice squad, Dan? You know, it doesn't sound like it. I think that they understand that they can have him on call, right, and <laughs> and play that game again if they need to. Brad Biggs in his 10 Thoughts piece on ChicagoTribune.com had a nice little nugget about Michael Badgley's week, right? He went to, to try out for the Chiefs earlier in the week and lost out on that tryout. And then, obviously, because of his uh, past history with Matt Eberflus in, in Indianapolis, he was able to uh, get an opportunity with the Bears, <laughs> signed very late in the week after a late-week tryout, after a couple flights from California to Kansas City, back to California, back to Chicago. 
Chicago, back to New York, everything that went into his week. And to see him step up on a day where, as I mentioned on, on Sunday night after the game, it was not ideal kicking conditions in, in, in East Rutherford, New Jersey. And so credit to Michael Badgley, but he gets a nice pat on the back and, and Cairo Santos comes back into his role. ChicagoTribune.com is where you can find Dan Weeder's coverage of Sunday's game and everything that happens at Hallis all throughout the week. 670thescore.com where you can find my game column off the Bears and Giants game from Sunday and every game moving forward. Also, you can find us at Take the North Pod on Twitter. Download, subscribe, and listen. We will be here every Tuesday morning, every Friday morning, and after games with our quick reaction with a half of an episode just to get that out of our system before we head <laughs> on to the week. Let's get on to our opening drive. It's time for the opening, the, the opening drive. All right, Dan, so we will get into – the Justin Fields matter in the QB one segment in more detail, because I think that is the talk of the town, certainly on the radio on Monday morning on our show, Mullion Haw show, predictably there were a mix of a mixture of opinions and yeah. range of, of reactions. But I want to study the offensive line here for a moment because Cody Whitehair is the best player at the weakest position. And I don't know if I how, how to feel about what they did in replacing him in the short term. Matt Eberflew said out for a while. Typically that says not for the season, he said, but it'll be a couple weeks. Lucas Patrick is going to be the left guard. Sam Mustafer remains at center. You don't have to be an offensive line guru to identify Sam Mustafer as the weak link right now. Why are they doing what they're doing now? Well, I, I guess the question would be, what would be the alternatives? To be honest with you, they don't have a lot of depth here. I think on a big picture level, uh, the Bears were in a situation where they were, were never going to have the depth to withstand a lot of injuries. They certainly were not going to have the depth to withstand injuries to their key players. So when you lose a guy like Jalen Johnson for a couple of weeks, when you lose a guy like Cody Whitehair, potentially for the rest of October and beyond, you've got to make some adjustments. I just don't know that there are a lot of simple, ready-made solutions here that make a lot of sense. So I'd be, I'd be curious to hear what some of your suggestions would be that, that would be alternatives to this. Okay, let me, let me play devil's advocate, or at least for the point of discussion. If I'm sitting in that offensive line, meeting room or the coaching staff and I'm it's Monday night and you're kind of okay guys what now I'm looking at my roster and I'm seeing a veteran with 10 years experience in Riley Reef. I know that I struggle protecting the passer I know that I have a guy that has barely played at all I wonder why I have to wonder if you have a problem why not come up with a creative solution now I'm not suggesting that Riley Reef a career tackle plays left guard. But I do wonder if you have some flexibility within your offensive line. If Lucas Patrick was signed to play center and he's playing left guard or right guard, what sense does that make? If Riley Reef is going to here, be here to be a right tackle and you think Larry Bourne might have a future inside, outside, it's a developmental type approach, why not try him at left guard, put it Riley Reef at right tackle and solidify your center position? Look, while we're trying options, why not try anything and everything? Well, to me, it feels like a lot of moving parts at a time where you're trying to make your starting quarterback as comfortable as he possibly can be. And you move a lot of parts around. Now you're experimenting with a lot of different things at once. And, and, and that doesn't necessarily cater to comfort for a starting quarterback who obviously doesn't have a lot now anyway. I know you, you the counter argument would be how could it get much worse, but I think it could get worse. I think it could get a lot worse. I think you could have some guys playing out of position, be very uncomfortable after training for the last several months for a specific role and then having to, 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 to move 
move somewhere where they haven't spent a lot of time. I remember talking to Kyle Long at length when they moved him right before the, the start of a season from guard to tackle and, and how many headaches he had just trying to make that adjustment on the fly and, 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 and just how anxiety producing that can be for a young guy who's still trying to find his, his footing at something that he's good at, right? Much less move him into something that he's not comfortable with. So I, I, I just, it's, it's a lot of moving parts at a time where I don't think they can afford it. At the same time, I just, I mean, I, the, this supporting cast here is everything we thought it was going to be, right? It's not providing a lot of support, both up front and in the receiving core. And the results are the results. I, I, I think when you zoom out and, and think about all the things that we talked about for months leading into the season, you see a lot of those things coming to fruition, albeit a little bit uglier in some circumstances than we expected to be. But boy, I, you know, it's just, it's a bit of a mess that may not be capable of being cleaned up in 2022. Everything you said is sensible. It's always been somewhat of a pet peeve of mine when I cover teams, whether it's the Bears or any other team in Chicago. But there seems to be this this uh, uh, preoccupation with embracing continuity. And continuity is why you can't make changes. In this case, continuity is pretty mediocre or worse. You're not protecting the passer. Six sacks in, uh, in 34 pass plays that were called from the sidelines. I don't know if there's much risk uh, that outweighs the potential reward here. But I, I, I know what you're saying. You, you do have to err on the side of caution when you're talking about Justin Fields and his protection because I think that you, know, you can't get too crazy. And what I suggested maybe, the, maybe uh, a, a conservative coaching staff would you know, classify as a little bit uh, crazy and not something you want to do ideally during the season. Well, also remember this, that the Bears signed Riley Reef on the eve of training camp with uh, plenty of urgency, right, to get him to to try to come in and compete and win one of those starting tackle jobs, and he didn't do it, right? And so they saw things during the summer and during training camp and during some of the preseason game action that left them more comfortable with a, a fifth-round draft pick out of Southern Utah at left tackle and Larry Borum on the right side. And, and, and so you say, okay, you know, Riley Reef is not, you know, some perennial all pro moving in to, to shore up a position there. Um, look, they got to find answers, right? And, it, and it, it's a team effort to find answers. You, you look through that game video from Sunday afternoon. They used a lot of help, justifiably so, from, from their running back and their tight ends to help with the pass protection. And, and sometimes it still wasn't enough with some of the pressures that the Giants got home with. And so you, you got to find ways to uh, get your quarterback to feel comfortable behind that offensive line and until he does it's going to lead to avoidable mistakes that stem from a lack of comfort we'll talk about some of those mistakes and the rapport he is establishing or not establishing with his receiving core in the qb1 segment dan but let's go across the side of the ball to defense matt eberflew spoke on monday about the difficulty the bears had not only in stopping the run but stopping daniel jones in the way that he hid the ball, his play fakes, and his ability to get to the edge and break contain. And Iberflus identified three different situations when that happened and three different defenses the Bears were in. And I thought that was interesting because it wasn't just one guy. They weren't picking on just one spot. They found him in three different situations, and they did the same thing, and the same mistake was made. So I, I look at the Bears' inability to stop the run, and they're giving up 183 <laughs> yards per game, a historic pace. If this continues, they would be the third worst rushing defense in NFL history. Oof. Dan, how do you address this in real time in the context of getting ready for a Vikings team full of weapons who will run, run the ball down your throat gladly as well as the, the, uh, the Giants did? 
How big of a crisis do you think this is for the Bears, and how are they viewing and addressing this? Well, what bothered me most on Monday morning and Monday afternoon and going back through some of the rewatch as well is that the Bears knew there was only one way that the Giants could beat them Sunday. The Giants were so depleted in their receiving core. They hadn't done really a whole lot at all through the first month of the season and the passing attack. And so you said, hey, we've got to load up to try to stop Saquon Barkley, right? And they, and they, they, they did. They loaded up and they tried and they didn't stop him. And then because of that, they over-pursued at times and they left Daniel Jones there to, to run wild in the the first half again for 49 yards and two touchdowns before halftime and you say man this was a a golden opportunity to kind of have your way with a one-dimensional opponent and you couldn't do it right and so that's troubling when you then fast forward as you just did to a game against the vikings where you know you've got to account for justin jefferson you know you've got to account for dalvin cook if not dalvin cook alexander madison and so you're going to be tested in a lot of different ways by a running game and a receiving core and a bright offensive-minded play caller that that is going to put you in in positions of stress and and if you couldn't stand up to the challenge uh, Sunday in New Jersey. What are we to, to think that you're going to suddenly stand up at U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis this weekend? Tell me if this is an overreaction. So I watch what happened on Sunday, and I see the Bears get gouged on the ground. Frankly, again, they've been in four games this season, and I think it's been way too easy to move the ball on the ground. And I think to myself, while there will be – clamoring for playmakers, clamoring for weapons. And the NFL draft and free agency will be where, you know, all, every pundit will want the Bears to spend, spend, spend for the flashy wide receiver. I want to build and I want to rebuild the Bears. If I'm Ryan Poles, I want to start from the ball on out. I have seen, number one, lack of pass protection be a problem yesterday and all season long, stunt the growth of my franchise quarterback. And number two, the inability to stop the run and get off the field so my quarterback can do something without feeling like he's desperate and has to make a big play all the time. So I may look at the draft and free agency as the way they approached it from the get-go. Larry Ogunjobi was priority one for Ryan Poles, and I think that's a good priority to go into next offseason, even though we're only four games into this year. And that may change, but I doubt that priority list will shift for me. Yeah, and you wonder what would have happened if they had just gone through with the initial deal for Larry Joby and how much he might have been able to help and, and and what would have happened with that situation had he been able to join this defense. They're going to have so many needs going into the offseason of 2023. It's it's staggering right now, and I think it's it th- this loss on Sunday as, as someone who covers the team on a daily basis kind of hit in the gut a little more than maybe I expected it to because you look at the calendar and you say, God, it's October 3rd and the whole world is fast forwarding to the 2023 draft and the, and the 2023 free agency bonanza, right? Like this is what we knew was coming, but for whatever reason, you had that that, that spike of energy in August. You had a, a undefeated preseason. You had the surprise win over the, the 49ers. You had the, the, the late heroics to beat the Texans and you kind of stiff armed reality for an extended period of time. And then reality came and punched you in the mouth on Sunday against a, a ordinary uh, opponent with, with, moderate talent that was obviously injury depleted and undermanned across the board and you got beat and you got beat pretty soundly because you couldn't do things that are basic to the game of football like visit the end zone one time on offense and stop the run on defense and so here we are David we're staring you know at, at three more months and, and and 14 more games of having similar conversations right of, of saying oh what are the biggest uh, right. weaknesses and, and look like we always said that 2022 is going to be about identifying 
the building blocks. Hopefully having a few young players emerge as guys you say, that those are guys we can build around. Well, we need to see more of it, right? Like in all the celebration of of the draft class in, in August, you know, like we need to see more flashes from guys that are supposed to be here long term. Uh, it, it's worrisome that, that we might be in a rut for a little while here with, with this team and, and, and having to wait until those spring months of, of 2023 for answers. And let's face it, in Chicago sports, October historically, <laughs> a heartbreaking month. So this is maybe just the beginning, although the schedule does agree with the Bears. They have a tough challenge against the Vikings, and then things soften up a little bit. I want to ask you two things about Matt Eberflus, the first being how he just reacted to the loss and some of the questions, and, and second-guessing. I, I think that he is – somebody that increasingly comes across as very comfortable, very confident, not cocky necessarily, believes in his plan and understands how immense the task is in front of him. And I felt like he answered questions the day after, you know, a loss that was a game they could have won without being real defensive. And, And I guess as transparent as he could be with everything except for injuries. And I understand that, but how would you describe Matt Eberflus a day after a loss? Well, one of the things that the leadership at the top of House Hall really liked about Matt Eberflus is his steadiness, right? And that's been apparent here after the two losses that they've had to the Packers and then obviously one that was a little bit more dispiriting, in my opinion, to the Giants on Sunday afternoon. And so Matt's steadiness is going to be something that they they lean on, right, as, as a little bit of a buoy when when the things get a little bit choppy. And and we'll see where they go with it, right? I, I, it, it's one thing to be steady. It's another thing to be able to um, – coach results into a team that they may not have the manpower to do all the things that you're asking them to do. And that's the fear here, right? Is that if you don't have the talent and you don't have the depth and you don't have the the firepower to compete with even the middle tier teams in this league on a regular basis, it's going to make for some long Sundays, which then make for some long Mondays through Saturdays. Right. And, and so that that's going to be the huge challenge for Matty Berflus is, is using that, that steadiness to get guys back, uh, recalibrated every week after tough losses to, to be able to, to lift them back up. Uh, I did think he was candid uh, on Monday afternoon with his, his review of a lot of things that, that needed to be asked. And, and hopefully there'll be a few weeks where the questions are overwhelmingly positive on a Monday, right? I, as someone who's been on the beat for 10 years, I would love a few more of those just for, just for a, a change of pace, right? On, on Mondays at Alice Hall. So let's see if they can make that happen. I particularly enjoyed when it was brought up what happened on the Justin Fields fumble. A lot of people thought like I was watching and maybe in the press box too, Dan, that thought initially looked like an incompletion. The arm was moving forward and you have seen that called an incompletion in the past. I think sometimes it depends who the quarterback is and how, how likely you are to get that call or not. It was a fumble and it was a fumble much to the surprise of some bears offensive linemen who, I don't want to say drew the ire, but certainly got the attention on tape when the Bears were reviewing it. And this is what Matt Eberflus had to say about that. It's a little bit harder because, you know, and again, all those guys got loafs on that play, you know, uh, just so we know that. But uh, the, the, the linemen, the linemen that were right there and then you know, the receiver that was there. So I think that, um, you know, that one's a little harder because it's coming from behind him. You know, typically when you have a fumble, if I'm a defender and I got, uh, you know, we're punching the ball, we're all pursuing the ball. You can see that ball. It's like when we, like when, when Blackwell caused that fumble, you know, then Jalen was right there and it was squirting out, then he, he got it. Well, everybody can see it. You know, that's a little harder. It's like, hey, I'm pass pro and all of a sudden this thing drops out of the sky, you know, over my head. You know, and then then it's there. You know, so I think Cody was caught off guard. You know, as all the linemen were, but we just had to be ready for it and and jump on it and have some reaction there. The butternut low for the day. 
brought to you by brought to you by the Take the North podcast, right? I mean that that that, that there's uh, you know an interesting balance in Matt Eberflus's uh, assessment of that sequence. There, I think obviously he's made it very clear to his offense, his offensive linemen, everybody in that in that room that that's not going to be condoned that you have to be on that at the same time there was a little bit of sympathy there saying look it was an odd play it was an odd sequence i understand why you didn't act with the urgency you need to but you need to react with that urgency over time david as as when when they altered the rules so that you know turnovers and scoring plays were automatically reviewed the officials were instructed to let plays like that go right if it's if it's a if it's a loose ball and it's recovered for a fumble they'll automatically send it up to the booth and if it was actually an incomplete pass you're going to get the ball back and so players need to know that right you've got to hear a whistle you've got to do what you do in practice and go after every single ball that's on the ground until you know that it's not live and they didn't do that and again it was a turnover that took the bears out of a scoring opportunity and then created a 75 yard touchdown drive the other way for the giants that swung the game right and and this is this is football in the nfl and so equinemius st brown a loaf cody white here a loaf tevin jenkins a loaf larry borum a loaf a lot of loafs given out today I love that because the penalties, if you will, the punishment, as he described, the loaf, as if you're grading the film, have purpose. It's not just, hey, I'm in charge and this is the way to do things. It's you can learn from this. Next time it happens, you will be more aware that if the ball is on the ground, you go after it regardless uh, if even if the whistle blows, you never know in today's NFL. So I think that was a good lesson, uh, a humorous moment. And certainly we did not go the Bears way in that case. But next time, maybe they learn from it. And you referenced uh, on our postgame pod what happened when the Bears famously didn't. And it was the Chris Conti game and all that happened with the Packers. And we don't need to revisit that. But you can have bad results when you don't do what Matt Eberflus wants them to do. Don't forget also, David, that in our pregame podcast before this game we talked about the fumbles last week that the bears didn't recover three of them against the texans including one that was forced by the offense after a justin fields interception that cole Komet jarred loose and they weren't urgent enough on getting on that ball so it was talked about last week and then in a moment of truth it, it, it didn't come to fruition for the bears to get on a loose football the way they could have and it cost them and and, and that's what's going to happen to a team like this you, 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 the the errors you make are going to seem three times as costly as they might to a team like the chiefs or the Buccaneers or any of the other Bills top-tier teams in the league that can can withstand that a little bit with some magic. Hey, everyone, this is Brett Boone. Would you know it? I've got a podcast going strong in our fourth year. Tune in as I sit down with my friends, some of the biggest names in sports, media, entertainment, for a lot of fun and in-depth conversations. As you know, baseball's been my life. It's been in the family for a long time, but it's a lot more than that here. It's sort of like taking a ride in a golf cart around a beautiful track. Join me every week for multiple episodes on the Brett Boone Podcast, available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Speaking of magic and speaking of Justin Fields, let's take a look at our deep dive into QB1. Okay, Dan, defining moment every week. We're going to look at Justin Fields a little bit closer because of obvious reasons. He is the guy, and this season is devoted 
much to his development and a lot to look at yesterday. It's being hailed a little bit too universally for my taste, a little bit too much of a consensus that this was uh, progress and easy, no easy to see because maybe I'm not seeing the same things a lot of analysts are. I don't know if we can just say total progress. There was a lot to like maybe, but there was a lot to be concerned about. What was his defining moment in your view? First of all, let me say this. As a golfer, I will tell you that if I make three triple bogeys and I come back on the fourth hole and I make a double bogey, it might be progress, but my round's not back on track, right? Like, so let's, let's, let's get it straight here, right? Like, let, let, let's make sure we clarify what we're talking about as far as progress. And so I, I just, you can't be excited. Analogy. You, can't, analogy. you cannot be excited about what happened on Sunday afternoon. The, the defining moment for me comes with 311 left in the first half. And this is a play that's been talked a lot about in the uh, 24 hours after the game. It's, it's a, a, a play in which Justin Fields has a four verticals concept sent in and he takes a snap and Darnell Mooney offers up on, on Monday that he actually ran his route consistent with the 2021 Matt Nagy playbook more than what he was supposed to do in the 2022 Luke Getze playbook, which is a notable mistake because on his vertical route, Mooney is supposed to bend toward the right hash a little bit, and instead he runs straight. That said, Justin Fields has the cleanest pocket he saw all day. The protection held up perfectly. Mooney takes advantage of a coverage bust and runs right up the seam, and there's a 35-yard touchdown pass just sitting on the table for the Bears. It's a grooved fastball right over the middle of the plate. Justin's just got to swing and put that thing in the bleachers like he did at Wrigley Field over the summer (laughs) on the field trip, right? And he decides not to for whatever reason. Is it because he's uncomfortable back there? Is it because he's anticipating pressure? He drops his eyes. He takes off running through a clean pocket. And ultimately, David, he picks up 12 yards. And it's a a, a third and 10 conversion with a scramble run. And this is why I've said for a while now that we have to make sure that we separate play results from play processes and decision-making. And it was a prime example of Justin making a play that moved the chains and kept the Bears in scoring range, but also left a huge home run on the table. And so we followed up today with Matt Eberflus to get his diagnosis on that play and kind of the the back and forth and the ebb and flow of what should have gone on there. Here was Matt's response to, to my question about that play. It's a very basic play. You know, that's just, you know, vertical, you know, you know four vertical play. And, you know, and Mooney that on that one's actually supposed to be bending across the formation, you know. He's supposed to be bending across. He was not supposed to go vertical. So I think that kind of caught him off guard a little bit. But uh, he certainly had time on that. Yeah, he certainly had time and could have rode the pocket there a little bit more. But uh, he decided to take it because what we were telling him is, is that to take the check down or run on that when they're in that defense. Translation, David, egregious error, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, that's what Matt Eberflew, that's as close as he's going to come on the Monday after a game to, to criticizing his quarterback. It's it's one that they left on the table. Uh, they can't afford that. Since you like the, na- the last analogy, I'll give you another one. I like to drive 80 miles an hour down the, the highway. I know it's illegal, but I like to drive 80 miles an hour down the highway. Sometimes a truck in front of me will put its brake lights on. My responsibility is to get in that other lane and slow down, right? Or do something to adjust to the actual circumstances and conditions in front of me. And Justin did not do so on that play. Uh, He didn't let his eyes see what they're supposed to see. And then even worse than all that, David, at the end of the scramble, he ran into a hit. Right. Like he had an opportunity at the end of a run to get out to the right, get the first down, get out of bounds and save his body from another hit. And he took a hit at the end of it. So there are about four things wrong in the decision making and the execution and everything that Justin did there that we have to put the magnifying glass on. Before I get to mine, I want to ask you a question. Do you think not yes or no? How far away 
are the Bears and Justin Fields from him pulling the trigger in a situation like that, from not being so worried about what he is supposed to do on this play and what he's supposed to read, because you could almost see when he's dropping back the process he's going through his mind and, and the, everything re- connected to this. And it's almost like you can see his mind working. You don't want to see that. No, How no. far are we from seeing him just react in the way the great quarterbacks do? And it doesn't matter if that play was called. It doesn't matter if that route was the one that's supposed to be run. He's open. I'm going to hit him because we're going to score. I sat in the shotgun seat of my dad's car on more than one occasion after a sporting event. And he would say, don't think you hurt the team. <laughs> and that was that was his catchphrase. And that's what you're talking about right here. The right. wheels turning. Right. And 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 turning too much to, to, in, in a way where you miss big play opportunities because you're just not there. Listen, a lot of this is about pocket presence. A lot of this is about pocket poise and feel and knowing how to shuffle, knowing how to climb, knowing how to climb and reset and do all these different things within the pocket that we've been talking about now for two months. Right. And, and so Justin's got to make strides with that, that show up on game days. The coaching staff continues to talk about it. He's going to improve. He's going to get more experience. He's going to get a better feel the more he experiences it. But boy, you got to have some examples where you say, that's it. That's, that's what we're looking for. And fewer of these examples where we spend four and a half minutes, breaking down a play that should have been a touchdown and instead uh, ended up on a drive that that uh, stalled with a field goal. That's a good one. Okay, I'll get to mine quickly. So it's first and 10. I think they're at the Giants 12. And it's still early in the game. And I feel like, I think it was Colt Komet that was open. And Justin Fields took a two-yard sack. And I just think, again, that was a situation where is it asking too much to think that he could have gotten rid of the ball in that situation, Dan? No. Um, is it, is it thinking too much to think that, okay, at that point in time, don't take the sack, get rid of the football, read the read the moment and react to it in a way that, that sets you apart and makes you special. Because what happened there was it was first and 10 at the giant 12. You're yeah. in the red zone and you, you hey, look, Luke gets his call on a pass. That never happens. And all of a sudden you get sacked because you can't pull the trigger. So what happens on second and 12? Khalil Herbert up the middle. What happens on third and three? Khalil Herbert up the middle. You lose your nerve if you are a play caller and Justin Fields puts you in that position, I think, in a defining way because, yeah, we can talk about the conservative approach and and how Luke Getze's not taking chances. Why isn't he taking chances? He doesn't trust the quarterback. And he's been given reason not to. Exactly. He's not doing it because he doesn't like him. He doesn't do it because he, the skill set doesn't fit the scheme. He's unwilling to build around him. It's because he's been given reason to doubt him. And it's not pundits and talk radio guys and beat guys, whatever. It's second and 12 because you took a sack you didn't need to take. Get rid of the football, move the chains, take the gimme. And to me, that was defining because, yeah, there were six sacks. Yes, there were 34 passes called. How many runs were tucking runs where you didn't need to be? How many sacks were responsible because he held on to the ball too long? I don't want to pick on the kid. I think you have something to work with. I'm just saying right now, right now, I'm straining to see the progress that other people are celebrating. There's no question about it. Three footnotes on that very play that you mentioned. Justin said after the game on Sunday evening that he was expecting the defensive end to, to follow Komet. 
and he didn't. Okay, again, this goes back to reacting to what you're actually seeing versus what you're anticipating pre-snap and making sure that you have that instinctive nature to you as you go through it. Darnell Mooney offers up on, on Monday afternoon that he made a mistake on his route on that play, right. that he got in the, the huddle and, and heard a, a formation that didn't trigger with him, and he did something that he wasn't supposed to do. This is like about the fifth or sixth example, and I love Darnell, but this is like the fifth or sixth example in the last three weeks or so where, where he's done something that he wasn't supposed to do by design. And so you say, boy, is there too much on his plate? What's going on here? It's a question for later in the week for Luke Getze. The other thing that I wanted to bring up here is second and 12 was a nine-yard run to Khalil Herbert. Yeah, I know you said it's Khalil Herbert up the middle. Well, Khalil Herbert up the middle got you nine yards. If you had taken those four to five yards to Cole Komet in the flat, that puts you in the end zone, and we're not having this conversation here, right? And so so all of these things have ripple effects, and, and they're cumulative, and, and so they, they've got to figure out a way to get that unlocked. And people get fixated on they've, done, they've run the ball X amount of times versus thrown the ball. Well, there's a lot of passing plays being called that result in either a, a tuck-and-run sack or a tuck-and-run scramble or something else, and they've got to get that number down, down, down quickly. And it was Cole Met on that play. I had just blocked it from my memory bank because I was so sick of the tight end screen that they went to one time <laughs> too often. So, okay. So that was the defining moment for both of us. How about on the bright side? Let's th- keep things positive. Was there a bright side for you, Dan? I mean, we may share the same one here, but obviously the, the 56-yard deep ball to Darnell Mooney's is it's the longest play of the season to date, right? It's 56 yards. It's a beautiful pass by Justin Fields, a beautiful catch by Darnell Mooney on a day where it's not easy. We talked about the kicking conditions. Well, it's the same when you're throwing deep and, and Justin just threw a dime and, and and showed a good combination of arm strength and touch there and put it where only his guy could get it and that was the start of a day in which Darnell had a season high 94 yards I would like to think that that's not going to stay his season high for for, for for much longer right that they get him unlocked with a day like that and now the next week you get 111 maybe you get a day where you get 140 what a wide receiver with 140 yards for the Chicago Bears maybe you score one week right maybe the, there's a receiver on the Chicago Bears that scores a touchdown at some point, but certainly this was supposed to be a positive segment. So let's just highlight the fact that they connected for 56 yards there. That's a good one. That was a great throw. He can still throw the deep ball. That was encouraging to see. I'll go with another pass that I think was, it could have been a little bit better thrown maybe, but I think Dante Pettis has to help his quarterback help himself. And Dante Pettis, the ball was put where it needed to be. He should have made the catch and he came down with a drop and that he was targeted three times, zero catches. That was one he should have made. You have to rely on veterans to pull your young quarterback through situations like these. And he didn't do it. So that was a bright spot, if you will, on the bright side for Justin Fields, because it was at least the ball where it needed to be. And that helped uh, help happens, you know, not that often this season. Let me ask you this on that specific play. Do you blame that incompletion on Ryan Poles? <laughs> on Ryan Poles? I asked that because Dante Pettis was a wide receiver signed to receiving core on May 11th, right? Okay. This wasn't this wasn't like this is a, a third wave free agency, fourth wave free agency veteran cast off where if you have a playmaker, right, like a lot of quarterbacks have, that play is made, right? And the chains right. move and, and and so I'm just curious, it, it, does this go back to the idea that they didn't get him enough I'll help in this. the passing game? You could have had a wide receiver that had the travel schedule and itinerary of Michael Badgley <laughs> last week. And if he's on the field and he's in the cover, okay. he's covered like that, you come down with the football or else you shouldn't be in an NFL uniform. That's okay. my first reaction is that, okay, I don't care if Dante Pettis has been here five months or five years. you got to catch the ball when they throw it to you. Never thought we'd be fighting over Dante Pettis here on the Take the North podcast, but we had it. There we are. Just All right, there we are. Worth asking. Let's go to our uh-oh moment. What was yours? 
So I'm going to have to streamline this because it would take too long. But my own moment is the entire second quarter. The Bears had four possessions in that quarter. And when I went back on my rewatch on Monday morning and went through every single play of that quarter, it was, as I tweeted, just boxes full of evidence for the Luke Getze defense team, right? These people that say Luke's got to turn Justin loose. They got to be, be willing to take some, some, some shot, shots down the field in the passing game. Well, they called a lot of passing plays that were set up to, to produce plays down the field. And the, the player execution was abysmal. Sometimes it was pa- protection issues, like on the fumble, right? Where you, you get a center and a left tackle beat and it prevents you from hitting a crosser. Equinemus St. Brown it has a perfect screen set for him by Cole Komet and is coming wide open for what's going to be a big game. But guess what? Two of your five linemen don't hold up. Your quarterback gets hit and you fumbled. There's the play that we talked about with, with Fields not seeing Mooney deep down the, the field. There, there are nine plays in the second quarter where you can circle and say this was a pass play that was designed to get something down the field and the players screwed it up, right? And so maybe Luke deserves some accountability for not coaching it or teaching it well enough for them to execute at this stage. But the idea that all they're doing is running and they're not giving Justin a, an opportunity to throw, I challenge anyone, go back through that second quarter, watch every single play in there and tell me that you don't see opportunities to, to uh, be productive in the passing game that were just missed because they're not good enough. I'm with you. Well put. I have some serious concerns and reservations about where this is headed, but I want to stay consistent and not make uh, conclusions. I, criticizing is not concluding. We're just uh, doing this in real time along the way, but I do think you make some really good points. I'm going to save my uh-oh moment for post <laughs> for post game. You know, there were enough during the game to raise some red flags. I did not like uh, what I heard post game, and I don't want to overreact to something that's said at the podium from a frustrated 23 year old. I want to respect the fact that he's still cooling off. But you got to recognize when your passing game's not producing, and when he was asked. Uh, something about the passing game, and he snapped back. It, I think it was Jason Leeser's question yes. from the Sun Times, who said uh, the passing game isn't working. Who said the passing game wasn't working. <laughs> only everybody, <laughs> right? Only the numbers. Only every statistic that matters. Only the metrics. Every the eye test. Metrics, yeah. Every eye test that this passing game has failed. Look, look. I understand that in that moment that you don't want to be asked about what you do the worst and nobody wants to fake, but you are the franchise quarterback and you should be prepared for questions like that. And when you come at it that way, it shows an obliviousness that you don't want to be known for. And I think when Matt Eberflus, frankly, talked about the positivity in the passing game, you know, I don't, it was hard to see progress without a microscope, I, right. I, just from my standpoint. So I think that that was to me, an uh-oh moment because things might get worse before they get better. And I hope that Justin Fields is equipped for the ride. Yeah, yeah. We'll see where it goes. But they, they have got a long way to go, certainly, to, to make anyone feel good. Okay, let's go to the big number. My big number to wrap up the QB1 segment is uh, 0.77, David. And I'm going to bring this number up uh, and update it almost weekly because that's the completions per possession average for the Bears through four games. Okay, it's it's astounding that the Bears can't even get to one completion per possession on their average. Only 11 completions and 12 possessions on Sunday against the Giants uh, for the year. It's 34 completions on 44 possessions. Gross, right? That's only one word for that, and it's gross. Well, Dan, my big number is 34, and you can correct me if it's not 34, but I went through and watched it, and I think that you even made references, but I think 34 is the number of pass plays that were called. Correct. 34 pass plays, 22 pass attempts, six sacks, and then there were the tuck and runs, which I think 
can often be attributed to poor protection, can often be attributed to inexperience because you're just not waiting long enough, perhaps. But I do think that 34 is the big number to me because it represents a, a shift in a direction. Now, you're not just ba- being as conservative as maybe you're being accused of being, Luke Getze, that you're willing to throw the ball or at least call passing plays and trusting your quarterback. Now, I still don't believe that he trusts him as much as he needs to. And I don't think that he trusts him as much as maybe as much as maybe we expected him to four games into the season. But calling 34 pass plays out of 60 snaps is more than half. You can do the math. There's, yeah. There would be no math, but it's more than half of the plays that you ran from scrimmage. So that to me does not scream conservatism. It screams that you want to give a chance to a guy to make a play. He just got to make them now. Right. And the bears were never down by, by more than one score. Right. So they were, they were within arm's length at, at most of the game. And so it's not like, you know, you were chasing three scores and you were sticking to the run. They were within a score. Right. And so it all takes is one touchdown drive at any point in that game to get yourself equal or, or, or ahead. And, and so look, I, 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 I was looking for evidence that the play calling was atrocious on, on Sunday. I didn't find it. I didn't find it. I found that the play was atrocious. And, and I, I hope that our audience and Chicago bears fans as a whole, uh, take a moment to kind of reassess that knee-jerk outrage that they had. It's really easy to do in this town. They've been through it a number of times before. Shoop is poop, right? Like that that started it way back in the day. One of my favorite signs from Soldier Field. And so, look, it's its just, it's like almost impulse here is to, to criticize the play caller, criticize the play caller, say the offense is too conservative. When you go back and, and, and you scour the video, you say, nope. Not, not, not even supported by a little bit of evidence. Were there, were there conservative play calls in here? Absolutely, a handful of them. But, but on the whole, the the, the game plan was uh, was was solid, and they just didn't they didn't execute. Okay, let's see what it looks like when we flip the score. Dan, once again, one possession game. Bears could have won this game. Not sure uh, that they. They'll play some more beatable opponents, but the Giants certainly were that. If you flip the score, what are the concerns that would still be evident? Well, the concerns would, I mean, the concerns are the concerns, right? Like those are the big things that, that would still uh, have us up in arms about this passing attack and the run defense. I think the things that we'd be really diving in on had the Bears won this game and got the three and one, we'd be talking about the surprise story of the NFC North, right? The three and one Chicago Bears. And we'd be talking about how Eddie Jackson has experienced a rebirth, right? To lead right. the three and one Chicago Bears. Three interceptions in four games after the drought that he was on coming into the year. Uh, he's obviously playing the ball really well he, he makes an a, amazing interception uh late in the game to get possession back for the bears it was interesting that both justin fields on sunday evening and darnell mooney on monday sort of said that maybe eddie shouldn't have caught that ball i think they may have been mistaken on on what the situation was like i think they may have thought it was fourth down there because that play came after a a third down conversion and 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 i remember in the moment being slightly confused because the scoreboard at MetLife stadium hadn't updated right and it and and I think maybe they thought it was fourth down, but you, you don't tell a, a safety to drop an interception on first down because because it's going to pin you inside the five. I mean, what what are you talking about there? Right? Somebody like, who padded his college statistical career by catching <laughs> glorified punts yeah. for four years at Ball State, I can say that there's no way in hell Eddie Jackson is dropping that ball. He on is first down. Plus, it's possession. And right. you know what? When you're chasing it, all you're thinking about is gaining possession so the receiver doesn't get it as well. I understand what maybe Mooney was implying and Justin Fields certainly after the game. <laughs> because, I mean, okay, they flipped the field. Tyrod Taylor's got a cannon. 
He went from the 35 to the four. That's flipping the field. So that's not really a bad play for the Giants, but it's a gimme for Eddie Jackson. There was no doubt that if this game had gone another way, if the Bears had come out of it, and maybe even now with the loss, but Eddie Jackson, because of his pedigree, can legitimately say he's playing as well as any safety in the NFL right now because he's got the interceptions to back it up. He's an improved tackler, and he's a team leader. David, thanks for bringing up the 35 to the 4 bit of this, because in live action, I said to my press box mates on both sides of me, I said, oh, my God, because it wasn't just the 35. Tyrod Taylor's like seven yards deep behind the line of scrimmage, and he throws that ball to the to the four-yard line. I mean, it was one of the more impressive deep balls I've ever seen thrown just in sheer length, right? It was just a, a cannon throw, and then he got under there. And so that was, <laughs> that was a little footnote on that play that like, I, I sat up in my chair and said, Oh my God, like that looked like a, a video game where you just drop back and throw it the entire length of the field trying to get a touchdown on Super Tech Mobile. Made me think that guy won every punt, pass, and kick competition <laughs> as a 12 year old because he can throw it a country mile. <laughs> All right, so I want to ask you about this. So when we talk about flipping the score, would you feel differently about the calculated risks or the, I guess maybe the lack of the risk involved, the risk averse decision making that Matt Eberflus showed in? not going forward on fourth and two late in the game for the punt and pin that he celebrated and called a great decision and doubled down on that, as well as maybe a couple other situations where, boy, are the Bears playing it safe? Could that have been viewed in a different context had they won? I'm on the fence on the punt and pin decision because I, I, we don't want to get skewed by outcome bias here and say, oh, just because the Bears, who hadn't stopped the run all day, stopped the run and, and forced a punt, it was a, a brilliant decision. At the same time, I think that they realized that the Giants had Daniel Jones, who could barely stand up behind center, right? And and that, they, that you can do some things differently strategically to make sure you just kind of load up and, and stop the run there. And so that, that factors into the decision a little bit. And I think that, that Matt just had a gut feeling on, hey, let's, let's trust the defense here. Let's get him to make a play. Look, we've all seen Bears punt returners drafted to be special, be special in those moments, right? And, and return a kick and change a game and potentially lead you to a win. Uh, I'm sure you can remember one very specific example, right? That that, that happened. And, and Bayless Jones missed his opportunity on Sunday afternoon, right? And he he, he, he catches that ball. At the very least, you get a, a, a better possession at the end of the game to, to give it a try, right? To, to give Justin Fields one last try to try to lead you to a game-tying possession. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, Matt's going to have many more decisions over the next 14 weeks that that will allow us to talk about kind of the conservative versus when you go aggressive, and we'll, we'll have a bigger book on him by December and January to say, yeah, he's he's ultra conservative all the time. Or man, he really surprised us by you know letting it hang there and, and giving it giving it a go. This was one example where I I kind of could have gone either way, but I understand the arguments on both sides. Okay, you have to allow my meatball question of the week. So maybe oh, trust me. I mean, listen. There's, right. Yeah, yeah. Let, I mean, there's, so, I, I get plenty of these on Twitter. Eddie Jackson returning punts. Consideration? Crazy idea? No chance? What do you think? I think it's a last resort for all the reasons we talked about. I mean, look, like Tariq Cohen's career ended on a punt return, right? Like on a fair catch in Atlanta, right? Like, let's just start there with the, the supporting evidence of the risk-reward of doing something like that. And so it's uh, it, it's too dangerous for a guy who means so much to your defense. You've got veterans here. Dante Pettis is capable of uh, being a possession punt returner for you and making sure you catch the ball in that situation. Eberflus was asked today, did you consider, given the stakes of that moment, not sending uh, you know a rookie 
playing in his first NFL game to catch that punt and and, and send someone with more experience. He said never never a consideration. Uh, obviously not Velas's best moment. He's going to have to make up for it at some point. Uh, but no, I don't think I don't think that it would have to take several injuries and a and a really big whiff of desperation to put Eddie Jackson back there. All right, let's take a quick look ahead. Okay, Dan, you know what? This is a good opportunity for the Bears. I know they're playing a Vikings team that's loaded with weapons. I know that building is not one that's been kind to the Bears, and I know it's Matt Eberflus's first venture there as a head coach. And all the limitations that we just spent this podcast uh, expounding on and maybe exaggerating a little or certainly exposing, but the Vikings are going to be coming back from London. The Vikings are coming off an emotional victory. They double-doinked their way to victory. <laughs> Saints. Any shot that the Bears will be catching the Vikings at the right time? Listen, I remember making my return from London uh, in 2019 and, and, and being just cashed for a week and being so happy that there was an open date on the back end of that. And so, yeah, there's 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 certainly a chance that the Bears catch the Vikings at the right time and that the, the preparation and the focus and practice for the next three or four days isn't as sharp as it might have been had they been on the mainland. Like, this is a real thing, you know, for people's bodies and, and people's minds. And so we'll, we'll see what happens. Look, the Vikings are loaded off offensively and they're going to challenge you in a lot of different ways and you're going to have to account for Justin Jefferson and you're going to have to account for Dalvin Cook and you're going to have to account for Adam Thielen and you're going to have to make life difficult on on Kirk Cousins and 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 we'll see what the Bears can do um Interesting matchup, right? I mean, it's it's a it's a Vikings team that's been living a charmed life so far, and that kick to end that game Sunday at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium was crazy because both of those doinks, right? Like you, we never thought we'd see another double doink with the game on the line like that again. But both of them seem to be on the inside of the crossbar and then on the inside, uh, or the inside of the upright and then the inside of the crossbar. I saw no way that that kick didn't go over, and then it fell in the front of the the, the end zone, and you say, "Wow." Wow, what a, what a break! And 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 certainly, I went back and revisited my coverage from uh, you know January of, of 2019 and and the most infamous double doink that ever existed. But this one certainly was was close in terms of its entertainment value. Somewhere, Cody Parkey shuddered. You yeah, know, he was watching that like, oh my gosh, and a big flashback. All right, anything else going on with the Bears this week of substance? Do you think we talked about the injuries and how they will address those? Anything else that uh, you expect to come out of this week? David well, Montgomery, Jalen Johnson, their status. Yeah, so, so the, those two guys and Bayless Jones are the three I want to circle on my, my, my schedule for this week because obviously Dave Montgomery looks pretty good. Uh, all things considered, running on the sideline, maybe three-quarter speed before the game Sunday afternoon. So we'll see if he's able to get back into the, the practice mix and, and push things a little bit. Uh, Jalen Johnson, I think we're certainly eager to see whether he's going to be back up, given that we just mentioned what Justin Jefferson is in this league. And you know Jalen Johnson doesn't shy away from a challenge. He came into to, to the league as a rookie and said, I want to cover Devontae Adams, right? And so <laughs> that's a guy who, who who's willing to take tests. And, and so he's certainly eager for one. The reason I bring up Valus again is because Bayless Jones played zero offensive snaps on Sunday in New York, right? And so at some point, given the problems the Bears offense has had in scoring touchdowns and getting explosive plays, you'd have to figure that they're eager to mix him into the offense in some way, shape, or form. He's got to have more than uh, more than zero snaps in Minnesota, I think. Emotional week for Armand Watts, the former Viking who joined the Bears and is a big part of a defense that has a big challenge ahead and a lot to prove. 
No question about it, right? This is a guy that, that came free on the waiver wire, one of those one of those claims that the Bears made in a, a surge of waiver claims that we talked about at the end of the preseason. And so he's obviously got some incentive to go back to the home stadium that he played for a while and, and, and prove that organization wrong and, and, and let them know they made a mistake or maybe they didn't. <laughs> Great stuff, Dan. Dan Weeder at Hallis Hall. Thank you for joining us here on Take the North Podcast, Episode 16. Download it, listen, and subscribe. You can get it on your free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back Friday morning to break down in more detail Bears and Vikings' big showdown, NFC North, the Bears' attempt to take the North in Minneapolis over the weekend. It's going to be a fun week. Great preparation. We'll be here for you. So come back on Friday for Dan Weeder, for Adam Stadzinski, our producer. I'm David Haw from 670 to score. Thanks for listening to the Take the North podcast. Mm-hmm.